Just listen. Listen to the tape. It's over. Your insides feel stale, like an empty stomach. Like there's a dense marble with a weak field of gravity in the center of your chest, pulling the ribcage inward. It's so slight that you can barely identify it, that pull. But the ribs ache like branches bowed, string not taut enough to snap but too taut to be ignored. It tightens by a millimeter every day. When I sit in my apartment, this is what I feel. When I sit at my desk, when I lay in bed, or when I'm watching TV, it's like the machinery of my body rusts. An all-consuming feeling of wasting time. There is just so much out there, and it whirls by out the window while I'm surfing the internet. <laughs> and I've been given this gift. I mean, I've been given arms and legs that move. I am locomotive. I have hands that can knead and pound, fingers to sculpt, eyes to explore, a mind to question, a mouth that can say something to someone. I mean, I can communicate. Yet dust settles on these bones. I sit and my ribcage bends as if to explode at some far-off date, plotting its escape from my immobility and exit from a body of what must be a statue, but not in the bus. The bus, or a car, or a train, anything that moves. See, there I can sit and do nothing, not even think, and over me washes a feeling of progress. The world moves outside my window, I'm going somewhere. In the interim, there's nothing I can do. It is an inevitable push forward, and that satisfies my ribs. It loosens the string. The slack lets my bones stretch. Air fills my lungs like a cabin opening for the summer. And I can relax for the ride. I'm going somewhere. Above me blinks the number 42. And at the helm, where a driver might be, it's a big fat 40. I look out the window. We are on our way. Hey, uh, it's been a little bit. I should probably ask Tyler to put some sort of present-day Brendan theme over this so that you can distinguish me from my counterpart, whose audio has also just gotten a lot clearer. Um, I'll try to be brief here. Basically, just wanted to cut in because um, in the spirit of full honesty, there's something I gotta tell you. Uh, and that is, there, there's a little bit more to that second tape, actually. Uh, I didn't hear it till a little later on because um, it was recorded after the hotel, but uh, eventually I did, I did pick it up. Um, I thought Brendan was trying to hop on a bus right then and there in the middle of the night. I mean, I'm not sure what future autonomous bus schedules are like, but uh, turns out they're pretty similar to ours. 
Uh, yeah, he wasn't going to catch a bus. They wouldn't be running for another couple hours. He was rushing out to do something else. He went back to his apartment and collected all of the tapes and uh, he distributed them around the city. Uh, he got on a bike and started finding places to just hide them, um, which is kind of a bizarre thing. Uh, he kept four, three or four um, on his person. He left a couple in his apartment hidden under a, a back panel of his compactor, I think. Um, he actually gave one he gave one to a, a good friend of his uh, and this is exciting for me because I've never met this person so looking forward to that um, named Halim I guess he woke him up at 3am um, to do this he didn't go into too much detail but apparently this is rare what's happening with these tapes the technology's been around for a bit but it's just never really worked and People have been recording over old tapes for a while, trying to send stuff back, but it's been unintelligible. Like, supposedly when you find static in an old recording, or I guess, like an old home video like this, it may have actually been someone trying to send something back. And on their end, when they play the tape to see if anything went through, they'll generally just hear the entire recording, with some slight static in the bits that did get sent back. And those bits that did get sent back, they become the static that you and I would see in videos or hear on cassettes. Um, but everything the sender can still hear on their end has not made it back. And when Brendan recorded over these old DVs and he played it back, he didn't hear himself. So this is his only indication that this actually might be working. And that's huge. Like one in a billion huge, apparently. So... I guess because he's not sure where this bus line will lead or what might happen to him or any of that. Um, yeah, I guess he decided he couldn't risk just, he couldn't risk the tapes. So yeah, I guess that's it. I guess that's why he hit him. Yeah, I don't want to take too much time. That's, that's all I really know. Um, the tapes are important and they're rare. So there you go. Um, yeah, back to it. The bus hums gently as it takes off. Its acceleration is so consistent that I can barely feel it. But I know it must be moving. Soon I'm pressed into my seat. Buildings fly by outside. Four more stops before I transfer buses. Or more accurately, before the buses transfer me. Three hikers just hopped on at Matic and walked down to the 42 section where I'm sitting. Two of them are laughing at the third. They remain standing even though there are plenty of seats. The third is an older man, all gruff and granola, probably early 40s, with a trimmed salt and pepper beard. Both of his hands are pressed tight into the pockets of his cargo shorts, his arms at full extension, revealing how proud he is of making the other two laugh. A bandana hangs loosely on his neck, tied with a hard knot that was at one point clearly meant to keep it snug on his forehead. The younger hikers are making fun of him, but he knows it. They feign British accents and call out to him, Father. The youngest explodes into giggles. Father, we're so hungry. Did you fill any of your hundred pockets with trail mix? 
his face cracks open to a smile, but he cannot match her level of performance. Trail mix. He pantomimes taking a cassette out of one of his pockets, one of his many pockets, and slotting it into a tape player. Of course I have a trail mix. Can't go on a hike without some tunes. The man starts beatboxing after what might be the absolute worst dad joke I've ever heard. And the younger hikers seem to know this. But it only makes them laugh harder. Their laughter consumes the bus. I feel it bounce inside me. No one minds. The older hiker pulls his daughters into a bear hug. And as he does, he growls. Just like a bear. An even older man, maybe in his 70s, raises his head groggily and belts out to the hikers. Pick a number! His command is a mix of night terror and carnival menu. The hikers stop laughing. Their huddle tightens. The daughter's eyes go wide, staring ahead into their father's torso. Their father glances back. Pick a number. The old man reaches his hand up for the father. His arm is peppered with scabs, skin tanned, all other features obscured by layers of sweatshirt. In the old man's hand is a paper fortune teller. It looks crudely constructed. His fingers are fit into it delicately, making the little paper pyramid float above his hand. From where I'm sitting, I can see two of the four numbers on its corners, five and three. No thank you, the father responds after a silent second, seriousness cutting into his voice. The paper fortune teller hangs in the air. The old man is a statue. The crude origami is a perched dove. Pick a number. Other patrons of the bus look down at their phone. I stare forward, unmoving. The father looks down at his hikers. We're clinging to him. They're scared. He turns back to the old man and sucks in his breath, already exhausted. Three. The fortune teller remains hanging in the air. Then fingers begin to flick deftly under the paper, apart, together, in, out, back, forth. The fortune teller opens and closes three times, as if breathing from a crisscross mouth. Then it lowers, slowly, until it is at the face of the old man. He lifts the fold facing him, again so delicately that it makes you wonder if this crude origami is some priceless heirloom. And then he begins to read the fortune on the other side. A fortune you seek, one long and wide, stretching more than the past and as sure as the tide. But is it truly what you buried treasure of the pheasant. Come answer me this and receive your present. With that, the bus hums to a stop and the doors slide open. The father says nothing, but his eyes are locked on the fortune teller. People begin to enter and exit the bus. They move around the hiker and the old man rather than stepping in between them, as if their eye contact were a tangible thread, a barbed wire on a low fence. The doors slide closed, softly, and the bus picks up again. Now almost all of the seats in the 42 section are taken, save for a perimeter of empty ones surrounding the old man with the fortune teller. He repeats, A fortune you seek, one long and wide. But he's cut off by the father. I want to know if you'll leave us alone. That's the fortune I want. The old man returns the fortune teller to his lap. Wrong answer. The tension is heavy. 
The thread between the two men pulled tight. And then the old man looks away without saying another word. At the next stop, the hikers leave the bus, two stops before transfer. They leave having succumbed to the silence, not a breath of laughter from any of them for the remainder of the ride. Fathers and daughters step off the bus, waiting quietly back into the world. I take stock of everyone else. So many of them have a touch of vacancy in their eyes, looking down at phones and tablets. There is one that's staring ahead, wearing dark shades, certainly not meant to block out the toothless glow of the fluorescence above. She seems to be scanning the crowd too. I scribble a line down in a journal I'm holding. Sunglasses, scans, bus. Likely this is unimportant, but I'm noting everything down. Because this journal, these lines, will become the recording I'm giving you now. And there has to be something on this bus line. 40, 42, 45, 49, 7. I transfer to the 42, most of those in the 40 going with me. I sit at the head until a couple stops later, another section snaps onto our caboose, and on its wall lights up a 45. There's a gentle migration on and off this section as passengers settle, the bus's aisle providing a wide berth. As I'm sitting down, I hear a pop and a crackle, fuzz. In the section ahead of me, a young man, confident, head of curly hair, skin so bold, so dark, it mixes with his t-shirt. He cranks the dial on a stereo, static. And then an explosion of bass. Passengers jerk their bags up to their body. Some retract behind the seat in front of them as if ducking to avoid a grenade. Pure instinct, terror. And then he dances, elegantly swirling in the cavernous aisle. His back is on the ground, feet up, spinning on his shoulder blades. Under the weak light of the fluorescence, his black shirt, his black skin, his whole torso fades into the aisle. But his legs, his shoes, his sweatpants striped with reflective fabric, they are a spectacle. They spin and spin impossibly fast, and the stripes become cones of light in the air. The bass booms, erasing every conversation, pointing to his legs like a sonic spotlight. He dances. And then with control, he comes down. And there is nothing else in the world. Legs drift to the floor. They must be moving through water. And then he sits and smiles. And I can see that there's an open stereo case in front of him, asking for something. But before I have a chance to imagine anyone rising from their seat and putting a dollar in that case, I see the red lights all around me. They were invisible during the performance, but I know they were pushed the second he turned on that stereo. Maybe 20 or so lights pushed in total, the walls glowing with scattered drops of red. The public disturbance button. See, without a driver, this button is the sentry of the bus, the order and the enforcer. Cameras scroll to this young man's position, and the bus stops. 
I watch as he packs up his stereo. The bus buzzes out a countdown. Faster. But he does not move faster. I mean, this man moves like he's underwater. He floats from his seat to the door and off the bus, just as the timer ends. He does not rush. The timer simply trails in his wake. The bus immediately picks back up, and no one says a word. This sort of thing happens every now and again, so it's nothing to comment on. But they do put their bags back on the floor, releasing their grasp. I glance around to see if I can connect the red lights to the passengers in any meaningful way. I try to be inconspicuous, but I have to turn around to see everyone. I see the light next to the old man. It's off. But then I stop turning. Because he's already looking at me. And for the first time on the bus, I feel my ribs begin to tighten. <laughs>